Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. Here on this podcast, I'm joining forces with a broad array of top-notch guests to share important life and career lessons, always with an eye toward insight, inspiration, and the drivers that help us build influence. I've spent three decades studying and learning the art of influence. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, advocating for a promotion, or running your own household, understanding influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast may just be the smartest, most efficient investment you can make in you. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. Learning to redefine success for ourselves is often a pretty important part of our growth and evolution. And yet, I don't recall ever having someone explain that to me before I actually reached that point on my own. This theme often comes up as I'm talking to guests each week here at She Said, She Said podcast. In fact, it was a big topic just last week in episode 171 in my conversation with journalist and entrepreneur Jenna Lee. Jenna left a very lucrative, high-profile career as a network journalist for Fox to create her own new startup. In Jenna's case, she's both redefining success for herself and creating a new way to think about how we consume news. But redefining success also requires that we edit or rewrite our stories, including the ones we tell ourselves. I talked about this topic of rewriting our stories in a bit more detail in episode 168, and specifically how rewriting our stories can also mean adopting a new definition of success and what it means to us. I know for me, I defined success pretty differently from how I did when I first started out. New people have entered my life who are incredibly important to me, but also I found the need to challenge myself professionally in a very different way. Both of those things have actually contributed to and landed me right here. But the way I think about success also had to shift as well. And if I'm being completely honest, there are things I miss about my old definition of success, even though I wouldn't change a thing. I suspect you can relate, especially if you've made or are making a big career or life pivot. The trick is to really own those pivots and to always be looking for opportunities to learn and grow and challenge ourselves and to be willing to rewrite the script, or as today's guest might put it, be willing to sing a different song. But there's another important dimension that we'll dive into today. It's the power of visualization and the importance of visualizing both our goals and our ultimate success. Today's guest is M. Greiner. M's story is a testament to the power of visualization. In our conversation, she talks about how visualization helped her go from small town daughter of entrepreneurs who ran a chicken newspaper to signing a major record deal and touring the world with the late legendary David Bowie. At the same time, 
Visualization also helped M soften the fall of the many lows in her life, and that included losing that major record deal only a year after signing. M has written her first book. It's entitled The Healing Power of Singing, Raise Your Voice, Change Your Life, What Touring with David Bowie, Single Parenting, and Ditching the Music Business Taught Me in 25 Easy Steps. Even if pursuing a professional singing career is not in the cards for you, and let's face it, that would be true for most of us, M's perspective on the power of visualization shows us how that can help us take chances, find passion and purpose, survive setbacks, and also turn downturns into opportunities. Putting aside M's incredible resume for a second, you'll hear much in our conversation that is both relatable and incredibly useful. And you'll also see how so much of M's advice aligns with our previous conversations about influence and the different levers that help us both build and sustain it to help us achieve our goals. Here is my conversation with M. Greiner. M, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. I am really happy to have you. I had a chance to dive into your amazing book and really loved it. I know my audience will as well. We'll include a link in the show notes to your book. But let's start our conversation there. What motivated you to share your story and particularly some of the maybe less glamorous and gritty parts? There's a lot of glamour in your story, but there's also a lot of it that's not so glamorous. Well, my life has been a real balance of glamour and really just regular life. And when I became a mom and sort of took on that whole role, I really stepped into, you know, what I consider kind of a domestic life. And this was coming out of a time where I sang with David Bowie right. and I had my own record deal. So it was really like a double life, you know, kind of a culture shock. And I've always loved that though. I've loved having both because I find joy in a lot of, you know, I love like living in a small town and just kind of having that normal life. But um, for me, I think the fact that, you know, I start the book with this snapshot of me on stage at Glastonbury and then I kind of come back to my early days where I just say it. I just blurted out. I was a terrible singer. I was born terrible. Um, I really mean that I was untrained and I didn't know what I was doing. So in revealing that, I want people to know right off the bat that anyone can sing. So that's kind of, you know, the upside of having both of those parts of life. It, that's a bit of a head scratcher to me. And when you talk about that in the book, I also scratch my head a bit as to how you go from the standpoint of really not being able to sing or not considering yourself a singer to, to, to where you ultimately end up. Well, thanks. And I don't know that I go around thinking I'm an incredible singer even now, but I do know that I'm more accomplished. I know that I'm stronger. And a lot of the book is about that. So I think for me, you know, when you're younger and you just feel like, okay, I got to get out of high school so I can live my life and I've got all these plans and I've got all these dreams, you're fueled by this kind of blind faith. And that fueled me more than my ability as a singer. Mm -hmm. So it's a real exercise in, you know, realizing that if there's something you want to do, 
it might not have to do with how good you are at it. It might have to do with your mindset, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I was younger, I had a lot of things in the way. And I talk about this in the book, like ego and just trying things out because I was inexperienced. But what did work for me is that sense of like, yep, I know I'm going to get a record deal. I know I'm going to get some recognition. And then I did. So I think taking a little bit of that blind faith, putting it back into the equation is sort of, I think, helpful when you get older and you get a little too smart for your own good. Yeah. Was there something about the way that you were raised that helped you tap into that faith and really believe in yourself? Well, my parents were um, newspaper owners. They ran their own business. And as a youngster, watching them do this was very interesting because I didn't think it was abnormal to have parents in the basement, you know, putting a newspaper together, like this archaic thing called a CompuGraphic, which sounded like five transport trucks in the basement. (laughs) And my mom like wax rolling, like the whatever she printed out of it onto like this sheet and then they go and would print it. But the bigger picture there was that they ran their own business and they did this for 20 years and it was a newspaper about chickens. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) What do you mean a newspaper about chickens? So this was like a local farm report? You know, it was more than that. You know, everyone's seen that movie Best in Show, the Christopher Guest (laughs) movie about the dog show. It was reporting on chicken shows. So really, yeah, poultry, it was a real, I guess it's a thing. Um, and you grew and- up in Canada, you grew, <laughs> yeah. you grew up in a small town in Canada. <laughs> yeah. So they purchased this paper from, from someone it had been running since the, since 1930. So it wasn't like they started it. They took it over and they created connections with, with people who like to show their chickens. And this was not abnormal to me. This was just like, okay. Um, so you, you're asking, you know, maybe where I got some of this motivated energy. Mm-hmm. I think I just saw that my parents, they didn't work for someone else. They were their own boss, even though it was kind of a bizarre upbringing. Um, they were doing it all themselves. They were in charge of their schedule. Our family telephone was like a business phone all the time. And they treated their customers and the subscribers with so much care um, like they were friends. And I think the subscribers and the chicken enthusiasts <laughs> were really excited to see you know, like my mom and dad at these, they'd have to go to poultry shows and report on it. So to me, it created this feeling like you could have a job, you could do what you wanted, you could run your own show. And that I think paved the way for me kind of not answering to a lot of people along the way. How did you go from there to getting your start in the music business? That is a fascinating piece of your story. And I don't think I saw this in your book. <laughs> I glaze over the chicken part. Yeah, I love um, that. I really love that. <laughs> yeah, well, pre-internet, you know, growing up in the 80s, there wasn't a lot to do. Um, we had this life where we went to these poultry shows. Um, and then I discovered one day Olivia Newton-John. So my, um, in my grade two class, there was a girl listening to the song physical and I had never heard this kind of music before. Cause my dad was like playing a lot of jazz at home. And then my P 
piano lessons were all made up of classical music. So I had never heard this and I just became enraptured with it. And I went home and where I live in Canada, where I grew up was across the border from Detroit. So I got all these amazing like radio stations coming over with R&B and soul and American top 40. And um, that, you know, really took over. So instead of wanting to learn the classical pieces on piano, I started learning like Heaven by Brian Adams and like, um, you know, just singing Whitney Houston and stuff. And uh, that's where it all began. I just love the radio. Where was that big break moment? When did you actually get your big break as a singer? This is really funny. I was walking along this country road that I live, I lived um, by, we live by Lake Huron. And um, I found a cassette tape on the side of the road. And, you know, I put together this broken tape and I listened to this band. It was a Canadian band, uh, a rock band. Um, and I fell in love with this band. They were called Coney Hatch. They had toured with Iron Maiden and, um, I wrote away to one of the singers and I sent him these songs I'd been recording at home. And he brought me to Toronto, a lovely gentleman, just pure hearted music man, which I was very lucky that that was my interaction. And um, we recorded some songs and that, that got me started. I heard my songs in the big studio and I was like, yeah, I can do this. So you talk about in the book, the importance of visualization. So as you're on the road, you discover what becomes your passion, which is music, you have this spark that is lit inside of you. Talk about the role of visualization and how you both used it in your own life and how you advise folks that you now work with. You're helping the sort of the next generation of singers to find their voices. Talk about the role of visualization and what you mean by that and how it helped you. Well, earlier we, we were talking about blind faith and I think that visualization is another form of just owning what you want to have happen. And we're no stranger to things like vision boards and, you know, writing to our future self and all of that stuff. But I think it's when you take that visualization and put some action behind it, that's when things start to happen. And I did it with the book itself, the, the very book that we're talking about. I, I had this idea to do a book about singing that wasn't a book that was out there. Um, I wanted it to have some stories from the road. I wanted it to have tips. I wanted it to have action items and, and a list of secrets, secrets for singing. So I mocked up a cover of the book and, and it seemed maybe a little bit silly at the time, but having that book cover was visualizing as well. And it really helped me in my phone calls when I called people up and I said, I have this idea. It led to my book deal. And then even later on, when I was talking with the publisher about the design of the cover, I was like, well, I actually mocked up the cover like two years ago. <laughs> Do you want to see it? <laughs> and uh, they didn't go for it. But um, just having that, right, just for yourself yeah. to know that um, what you're dreaming could actually be real. Yeah. There are plenty of people who aspire to success, whether it's in singing or journalism or politics, or I mean, it could be any number of things, right? And they don't ever make it. You talk about in the book, the importance of preparing for success. Maybe dig in a little bit to what you mean by that. And you also put some emphasis on 
the importance of understanding your finances. And I think that's such an overlooked concept. Dig in a little bit to what you mean by the importance of preparing for your success. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways you could prepare for the greatness that you already have in you. And I, I think it's important to mention that sometimes when we talk about visualization or having a vision or goals, we think of it as outside of ourselves. And that's something that I've kind of realized lately is that, you know, once you think it's outside of yourself, it becomes harder to attain. So all of these things that we really want to have happen, I believe are seeds that are kind of growing in us, but we do have to create, like I, I talk about setting the conditions for success, um, which is a term that I borrowed from a sound man that I work with. And, you know, he spends countless hours setting up a room before he mixes a band. And sure, it's a pain for some people. They don't want to open their doors early. Um, he requires like, you know, utmost quiet, but it's the same thing with whatever your creative endeavor, your work endeavor is, um, whether it's no, like if you're going to do a talk, which I talk about in the book, using my voice that way, who's in the audience? Um, you know, what messages are they hoping to take away? Uh, who's talking before you? Um, could you tune into what they're um, talking about? It's almost a sense of being present, which we hear about a lot, right? And how do we stay present all the time? But in terms of preparing, I just think stepping into the moment, taking a 360 view of either what's in front of you or what you're headed into, and how can you set yourself up for success? So, you know, if you want to be a singer, for example, what's the first step? You know, maybe you know, for some people it's like quitting smoking or starting a cardio routine or something. Um, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. Like you can start with one small thing um, and just kind of celebrate that uh, success when once you've kind of achieved I, what I call clearing the path. Dig in a little bit in terms of the financial piece as well, right. because you do emphasize that in the book. And I think it's such I think it's such an interesting element because we oftentimes overlook the importance of <laughs> considering that. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you meant by that. Why does that matter? Yeah. And you know what, Laura, I really love that you have so many different types of people on your podcast because, you know, in the artist world, we're not used to talking about money. Even right. today, when I talk to other musicians, there's an element of sheepishness about it. And I think we're just raised from the get-go to, to, to know or expect that we're not going to make money. And there's a part in the book where I start, a, start off a chapter by saying, you know, what I get from a lot of people, which is the phrase, you make a living at that? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> even before you can manage your money or understand it or feel proud of it or celebrate it or whatever, you're already met with this doubt that, you right. know, you can pay for a microwavable meal, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, you kind of have to push back against that. But also, you know, I think a lot of women are now really proud of building a business for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that really will apply to artists as well and singers and musicians that we need to treat our art with the same importance as any other business. Or if we're working for a company or corporation, um, we tend to give so much importance to those 
sorts of businesses. But really, like as we've seen in the pandemic, art and music, um, they're unfailing. You know, they they save us. Um, they're, they're a lifeline, right? So if something is that important, why wouldn't you understand your money flow and, and take it seriously? So I talk in the book about a time I got audited. And, you know, you said at the beginning of this podcast, like we talk about some of the less glamorous parts of being a musician and certainly being audited is not, uh, you know, by the we call it the Canada Revenue Agency. <laughs> they never have great names, do they? Um, but uh, you know it's going to be unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the great thing though about that audit where they took like three years of my of my life as a musician and really put it under the microscope and they're like, where's the money for this? Why don't you have these receipts? What do you do? Like there's such a divide between government and art, you know, um, even in Canada where we sometimes think those things are, they can cooperate. But um, the great thing about it is that it was a wake up call to take my finances seriously. And when you know where the money is and you and you have a good relationship with it, which I think that's the key, um, you can just start to really see the connection between, you know, your purpose and making money, which I think yeah. is the key, right? Yeah. And understanding the value piece, right? Mm -hmm. That connection to value, which yes. is really, really important. And I think oftentimes it's something that, for whatever reason, historically, I don't necessarily think this is the case anymore, but historically, women were not, you know, proportionally raised to focus as much on money as men for mm -hmm. a host of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, it's a, it's a very interesting data point. I think such an important one. So you went on to have a, an incredibly successful solo career really high highs, and then some pretty big lows. Maybe talk about that and how one of those lows led you to yet another high. <laughs> I love, so, there's so many elements of your story and this idea of reinvention and bouncing back. Maybe talk a little bit about that experience. Sure. So I had always dreamed of having a big record deal. And for some reason, I just knew I was going to get it. And when I was 21, I got it. And it was after a bunch of touring in Toronto, you know, writing a lot of songs, getting out there. Um, and I got signed to Mercury Records, had a big advance, uh, a big uh, album that I got to make in London, England with all my favorite people. And literally within a year, right after my album came out, I got dropped. And it was an acquisition that Seagram's they had a billion dollar acquisition where they took over Polygram and they dropped all these artists. They fired everyone who worked at um, the record label. They kept a few mm -hmm. artists on like Sting. I guess they thought Sting could sell records. Um, Cheryl Crow, people like that. But most people got dropped. And I think that, you know, in hindsight, I, I think it was pretty traumatic for me. But I was 22. I was thinking, oh, this is just a blip on the on the screen. I'm just going to keep going. So, so, so even in that moment, you didn't necessarily internalize this failure. Well, 
that's the thing. I think when you're older, you can see clearly maybe what has happened. And I really didn't process it. I didn't like grieve the loss of that big deal. I just kept going. So I went and I recorded more. I recorded like whatever I, you know, I made my own little album. And I say little because the budget was $500 as opposed to a quarter of a million dollars, which was my first budget. Um, and oddly, that album did like better uh, than my major label album. It had more of a chance to come out. People really liked the songs. But yeah, I was floating around. And I think when I look back now, I was probably, I, I know that other people thought it was the end for me. Like there are a lot of people in the music industry that were like, oh, well, she's done. Or she was just a, a girl that got signed because Lilith Fair, like it was the time of the women or whatever, <laughs> right? So there was all that floating around, but I always rejected that. Like I, I just love making music so much that I figured there has to be something right. more. So I just started touring places that I love to travel. And I came to New York and did some shows there. And I met um, the other members of David Bowie's band. And that's how that began. So maybe talk a little bit about that experience. Um, you had a friend who was already, she, she was a backup singer for David Bowie. And you had a relationship with her, knew, knew her. Um, talk about that that connection and that moment with Bowie, because that's, I mean, that's incredible. And thinking about, you know, I remember watching David Bowie on tour in 1999, the appearance on Saturday Night Live where you are featured. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for those who want to Google that, you can pull it up on on YouTube and see him there as one of the backup singers. Talk, talk about that experience and how that felt to you. It was pretty amazing because I mean, I'd never planned to be a backing vocalist, but there was everything about that experience with Bowie that was almost meant for me. Like, you know, I actually was listening to all the bands that were inspired by him, like Duran Duran and whoever else. Um, and then it made me realize, oh, like they're inspired by him. And uh, it just opened my eyes to so much music. Um, I love England so much as well. And He's so creative. It really mirrored how, you know, me bouncing back from my my record label tragedy. Um, I just I, I immersed myself in creativity and just like continuing on. Um, so there was that element, um, but there was also just like <laughs> you're kind of curious about fame when you want to be a pop artist, right? So I hadn't achieved it myself, and then. I got this opportunity to like see one of the biggest rock stars in the world um, just do his thing, Wh whether it was rehearsal, like having dinner, like getting ready for a show, picking out outfits. It was, it was such a rock and roll education for me. Um, so, you know, saying yes to things that you might not plan for, but they feel right. I think that's what I took away from that. And then just, he was lovely. Um, he, he really, you know, like he'd take you on stage and introduce you to the crowd and hold your hand. And he was just kind of like a, a, a fatherly figure um, and, and always really curious about art and music, which I loved. Yeah. What did you learn from him? Were there any specific lessons that you took away from the experience, how he approached his audience and his fans, perhaps? Or what, what was it that you really learned from him? 
Well, I learned how to be professional. There are plenty of times things would go awry technically, uh, whether it was on a TV show or, you know, even with the voice, like losing his voice, um, which he did at a couple of shows um, at Roseland Ballroom. Um, he just kept his cool. He really would just, you know, kind of be a bit scientific about solving problems. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't take himself so seriously, which is surprising considering he's so influential. Um, if we made mistakes on stage, he just let it go. I don't know. He really knew how to just kind of let loose, but still capture the energy and the magic of music, which I think some people are really laser focused on like being perfect with everything. And, you know, I got to portray the perfect image. And there was a lot that was like rough around the edges and that was okay. And it was almost great. Like Ziggy Stardust, there's stuff in there that's out of tune, you know, um, and, and tempos that shift and things like that. I know it's a different time now, but yeah, I think just having a little acceptance for who you are. And then I talk about in the book how Glastonbury was so uh, inspiring because we were rolling up to this major festival, 110,000 people. I think it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest concert of his career. And he said to us, uh, he said to the band, he said, okay, guys, this isn't about us. It's about them. Hmm. And that made us go, what? It's not about, <laughs> wait a sec. It's not about us. Because when you're 20, I was 25 when I was touring with them, it was pretty much all about me, even though I was <laughs> touring with Bowie. Um, but it was true because the size of the crowd, the energy of the crowd, um, it can't be about you right. when you're on stage. It doesn't matter who you are. It, it really was about them. And that sentiment also, I think, applies so much in life, you know, um, kind of wish we had that sentiment more over the past couple of years, mm -hmm. but um, we're very focused on ourselves still. So that's what I learned. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. You talk about in the book, the importance of making space in your life to say yes to things, to amazing opportunities that you may not know in the moment are going to be amazing opportunities. Talk a little bit about, dig into that advice a bit, talk about um, why that's so important. Yeah, I mean, clearing the space um, to use your highest and best energy, right? Um, that is something that, I don't know, uh, it's, when you're a mom and you're an indie musician, you just want to do it all, right? And you don't have to be either of those things to kind of approach life that way, that's for sure. Um, we tend to feel like we have to do everything and be great at everything, and then we burn out, mm -hmm. which is really what happened to me in my marriage, uh, where I just kind of I think it actually stemmed back from being dropped from Mercury where I was just like, well, I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to do it awesome. And <laughs> people are going to think I'm so fierce, you know, and I just kind of put that out into the world and just kept going like record. Like if you go on my Wikipedia, um, there's like 20, 25 records. Right. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people have heard of them, but to me, they're just like, my 
kind of show my display that I could continue on no matter what. So I'll put out a record every year if I want to, because I can. Um, and then you throw parenthood in with that and then trying to be a partner with someone that you're not really aligned with. And there was no way that could sustain. Right. So the end of my marriage signaled like, you know, it was devastating, but it, it signaled the fact that I was going about it the wrong way. Yeah. So then you think about, okay, well, how am I meeting my needs? And I talk about that in the book, which is weird because it's a singing. It's my book is about singing, but so many of us are feeling like we can't find our voice or falling short as a creative person. And I think sometimes it's just a universal problem where we're trying to find ways to meet our needs that aren't sustainable, right? So once you clear the path, once you realize, okay, well, that's not good for me. Um, what is good for me? How can I do less but be more effective? And there's all kinds of action items in my book so people can kind of start like doing one or two things, right? Because we feel overwhelmed. Yeah. You put it so beautifully in the book. You talk about your self-sufficiency was a big roadblock for you, right? Mm -hmm. And that self-sufficiency to some degree relates to control, right? Mm -hmm. And control, of course, relates to fear. So maybe mm -hmm. talk about how you got a handle on this, what you did specifically, and maybe what advice you have for other women who are listening who may be struggling with this, whether they're pursuing um, a music career or something very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, control. That's really interesting that you say that because that is where it's rooted. And if we can sort of realize that we don't need to have that necessarily or we don't have it anyway, yeah. uh, that the universe is going to support us. Um, but then you sometimes it's confusing because you you know you might wonder well how is the universe supposed to support me like where do I start and it's interesting because I, I talk in the book about Chris Hadfield who is a Canadian astronaut who I collaborated with and I asked him about like fear and control and that sort of stuff and I'm like how do you deal with like being in a rocket going into space um, how do you deal with all the stuff that could go wrong and his response was that um, it's about, you know, I can't actually control any of it, but I can control my attitude towards it, right? So I think part of it is a conscious mindset shift, um, but also like just like try something new, like um, uh, even what we're doing right now, Laura, like two women exchanging our experience and our ideas, mm -hmm. like that is a powerful use of time. And sometimes we can't really accomplish everything if we're stuck in like this self-immersion where we're just sitting around ruminating or like, I mean, journaling is great, but sometimes we need to engage with others and just admit that, you know, we need each other and we actually are better when we're operating as a community. As long as those people around you are people who lift you up people who you trust, um, people who have something new to offer or a new way to look at things, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's all, that's kind of where it started for me is it actually started with podcasts, <laughs> like listening to going on long drives on tour and, and being totally lost in my personal life uh -huh. 
and and being open to new concepts and and hearing other people share ideas. I love that. That's so. So you're beautiful. saving the world. <laughs> In case you hadn't been reminded, you lately. you are so kind. Well, you you actually found us. I'm I'm curious how you found. <laughs> she said. She said. <laughs> well, you had um, Dr. Samantha Boardman on. I did. Yeah. yeah, and I am like just a new fan of hers. And uh, let's see, there you go. Just like yeah. women sharing ideas, and her book is incredible. And yeah, it's funny that you mentioned her as you were talking. I was thinking about. One of the things that she talks about in the book, uh, her amazing book is called Everyday Vitality, and she was on a couple of couple of episodes ago, and she talks about the importance of recognizing when self care becomes selfish. We've taken we've taken it to such an extreme in some cases that it becomes almost selfish, and that when we pivot that and focus on giving outwardly that it has a real mm. impact on our vitality and i just thought there were so many things that she talks about in her book mm -hmm. and in the conversation that are so brilliant um so if folks haven't had a chance to listen to dr samantha boardman <laughs> go back. back and listen to that episode too <laughs> after you finish this one yeah <laughs> after you finish this one because <laughs> we've got lots more to talk about so you mentioned chris hadfield and uh, I believe you're credited, the two of you, with recording the first, if not the only, music video and recording from the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. He was there. You were in Canada. Uh, talk I just about had how my that came about. Daughter, she was five months old, and um, I had known Chris for a while. We're both from the same town, Sarnia, Ontario. Um, and we had done some music already. He's a musical guy. He performed at my concerts before. And when he became commander of the International Space Station, he called up, which is like thrilling, like calling from space. Hello, it's Chris Hadfield calling from space. Um, yeah, it was a great call amazing. to get. And he said he wanted to collaborate on music. And I, you know, when you're a new mom, you kind of jump at new <laughs> something other than changing diapers and being housebound. Um, and I said, yes. And he wanted to record a version of Space Oddity. And uh, conveniently, I had sung with Bowie. Uh, that was a song we had not done, though, before. And it was one I always wanted to do. So it was really interesting for Chris to approach me about it. And uh, he wanted to change the lyrics which was a bold move um, for a Canadian, because uh, in the original, the astronaut dies. So he wanted to change the lyrics and he did it. He, mm. <laughs> he did it, but I, I, I came up with the chords <laughs> for that piece of music. I, I started the tone for it on piano, mm -hmm. kind of drew from my love for Peter Gabriel and some of his ballads and shot it back up to him in space. And he sang it in his little bunk he closed the sliding door in his bunk he sang on an ipad and then we just went back and forth like that and um it was kind of thrilling but also we didn't know what we're doing uh he was really unsure about whose permission he'd need to record in space because copyright's a little bit shady <laughs> up there <laughs> i don't know what the rules are that's so interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought of that. That's so interesting. <laughs> but he did want David Bowie's permission. So I was the person to connect the astronaut and the rock star. And it was really thrilling because this is a song that um, 
it's so iconic. It was really funny in one of his emails, he uh, said, how can we help the Astro Man? <laughs> and um, it, it turned out to be this beautiful thing where Chris shot himself singing Space Oddity, this new version in space and released it to the world two days before he came back to earth. And um, I was just, it was so great to hear Bowie's kind of, I felt his glow about it, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I was really proud of just being a part of that, kind of connecting these two otherworldly people. Yeah, and it's yet another great example of saying yes to those incredible moments and having the space in your life. Although I'm not sure how you did with a, with a five month old, <laughs> basically a newborn <laughs> baby at home. Um, nevertheless, so your you know your life has been filled with many pivots and real highs, real lows more highs, more lows, <laughs> right? Yep. How did all of this, and particularly sort of the extreme highs and extreme lows, how did all of that prepare you maybe, or sort of impact how you faced something like the pandemic, which we've all you know, been talking about, what have we learned from this experience? Maybe talk about, did your life experience prepare you in a different way, perhaps? <laughs> That's a great question. And for the first year of the pandemic, I would say I was better prepared than anyone because mm. a musician's life is uncertain. We're isolated half the time. We don't know what the heck's going on. Um, we're just fueled by doing what we love, right? But I think as time went on, um, I realized that we are all thrown a curveball and that no one was really prepared for it. And we can say, obviously, we all have endured it differently and have different feelings about it. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it, it helped me sort of surface level in the first year to, to have that kind of resilience that I'd already um, kind of fostered in my life. But then as time went on, I just... It, it's that I think it was when things started to open up and I got to play live again and I got to see people again, see my fans again. Um, then I realized I've been missing a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was a real wake up call to me that I wasn't actually doing that great during it. I, I was kind of, again, telling myself a lot of stories um that you know i can handle this or whatever and it's inspired a lot of honesty um very very inspired to make music again and connect with my fans again um so yeah i don't it was surprising to me i thought i kind of had it all worked out <laughs> yeah did it did it inspire you to write the book or was the book already underway before the pandemic the book was underway already i had started well, it was around 2019, the start of 2019, when I brought this idea to a friend who, who, who eventually passed it on to the publisher. Um, it gave me something to do, for sure. Um, I was worried I wouldn't be able to get the book done in the pandemic. It's sort of like, you know, when you're given that time, that that pause. Um, <laughs> I think I was like, oh, what, what if I don't finish it during the pandemic? I'll never be able to finish anything. But yeah, it was nice to have something to kind of hunker down and work on when things were quiet. 
Yeah. And to be able to really shift your energies and your focus and maybe, you know, your fear, concern about what was happening in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a big, big <laughs> believer in finding something to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, you have uh, also engaged in a more recent career pivot where you are spending a lot of your time and energy teaching and coaching others. And you talk a bit about that in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Talk about what teaching and coaching have meant to you. Well, it's interesting because as a musician, as a, as someone who's wanted to be like a, a full-time pop artist, teaching to me seemed like, career failure. I did not want to do it. When people would say, oh, you should teach, I would just be like, well, what do you, I felt insulted or something, right? But what happened was uh, a girl in my town came to me for singing lessons and I half-heartedly half said, yeah, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and it was amazing what happened. I looked past myself and I think a lot of people who teach and guide people must have the same um, experience. But I look past myself and I saw, I don't know, I just got really engaged with helping this girl, Emmy Fink was her name, great name, uh, find her voice. And I realized that I had something to offer as well. So it's it's like, you know, when you're talking about Samantha Boardman's book, you know, when, when you give back, it's bringing the vitality into your life. That's exactly what it was. It was getting out of my own head, sharing something that I actually didn't know I had to share and seeing the fruits of that um, for her, for this girl. And then I just, more people came to me for singing lessons and it grew into mentoring because I realized then, oh, I have this 25 year career as a recording artist that people want guidance on. So I did that. And then I got my certification as a coach. And now the vocal part of it is actually quite small. And I'm helping a lot of women, you know, find their creative groove in their lives. A lot of professional women who have put it off or who have felt undeserving of a life in, in the arts. Um, and that's so amazing to me to have that running alongside my music career, because I wish I had that as I was growing, right? Yeah. How do you coach them on dealing with self-doubt, which I think is just a running thread for so many people, but it's such a, it's a topic that comes up so frequently on this podcast. I'd mm -hmm. love to know how you help them tackle that. Great question, because it is so pervasive. And I think part of it is maybe accepting that we will always have it, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not about getting rid of it. Because um, I've seen it. I've seen it in in someone as, as great as David Bowie, just the sense of like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And you need the support of people around you. It's not like you you need to be validated externally and that's it. But I think there's something to be said about that sense of community, right? So we need support. Uh, nothing gets done alone. So sometimes it's about finding ways for my clients to find that support in a way that feels good to them. Mm -hmm. um, because you can go off and take a course and it doesn't stick. Um, or you can talk to your friend down the road and you just get kind of misguided. So it's also about finding um, 
that support that's aligned with your energy and, and what's going to be sustainable for meeting your needs, right? And then sometimes it's about saying, you know, maybe you need, maybe that person needs, um, you know, uh, um, help dealing with past trauma. And that's not something I do. So it's about, you know, maybe f- helping them find support in another area of their life, or maybe it's about rerouting the neural pathways. So some people really take to meditation and and mindfulness. So it's just different for everybody. There's not one recipe for one person. Yeah. How about advice for dealing with those forces in your life that may not be as supportive? (laughs) That's such a good question, because that has been kind of like my last five years, you know, the the people around you that you you swear they love you, you swear they have your back. And it's not always the case, right? Um, It's really, really hard. Um, I think sometimes you have to try your best to communicate with those difficult people. But you have to also follow your instincts when you know that you've tried as hard as you can try and it's not getting better. Um, So sometimes that's the most painful thing we have to do is really look at not only how that negative energy is coming into our lives, but how we contribute to it, to it as well. Like, are we enabling it by like upholding our part in the connection? I don't know. So it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of soul searching, but you know what? I think when you bring other people into your life who who um, lift you up, who get you, who make you feel greater than you are, or see the real you, or you know, see your potential, then it's almost like you can see put those people side by side, and you start gravitating towards that good energy. So maybe it's some of that. Yeah, maybe offsetting the bad in some respects. Sometimes you can't always get rid of the people that are that's true negative energy. And so offsetting them can be one way to do that. I'd love for you to share because influence is a big component of what we talk about on this podcast and the different dimensions of what makes someone influential and how each of my guests think about influence in her life. Maybe give us your thoughts on what does influence mean to you? That's a great question. And I think even with the book, um, I had a few drafts of it before I settled on what I felt was the best version. And those previous drafts had some solid singing tips and some really impressive stories. And at some point, actually, I, I do know when this was because I met my my current partner, who is a writer and an editor and a poet. And I realized I was not telling everything. And I think when it comes to influence, you need to tell everything um, that that makes sense to you to share. So in the context of this book, there's a lot of embarrassing moments that I share, um, you know, admitting I wasn't great with money. That's never good. Right. Um, talking about the end of my marriage and how brutal that was for me. But honestly, when I talk to women who have read the book, 
that is what resonates with them and they share their stories with me. So it's less to me about like, how can I be influential and be wealthy or successful or be on this great podcast or be on the show or be a bestseller? When a woman comes to me and says, this is what happened to me, that to me is the kind of influence that matters to me. Um, and I honestly think that I, I, I had the bravery to share because other people were doing the same around me. They were showing the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And that's how we move forward. And that's how we move out of this place of dwelling. And I was in a place of victimhood for so long after my marriage. I was just like angry. I was left. And you know what? It's these things happen and we can turn them into just life-changing, brilliant, wonderful moments. Uh, and they can start a whole new life for us, which has happened in my in my life. And I'm so grateful for it. I love that. What an amazing answer. That's really beautiful. Okay. One final question I have for you. If you could go back um, and give your 21-year-old self one piece of advice based on this incredible life that you've lived, what would you tell her? Well, that's a great question. And I would have answered that differently even a couple of weeks ago. And now, yeah, now I would say nothing. Don't do anything different because everything that I did, I was meant to do. And that might seem a little bit like I was on the right path the whole time. I know that, you know, it took me longer to get to this place in my life than maybe it should have. Um, but that's how long it took for me. Um, I needed to feel that long marriage, go through the whole thing. It needed to end when it needed to end. I needed to sit there with my four-year-old and my six-year-old and explain to them what was happening. Um, and I can only say that because life has turned such a beautiful corner. And I hope that people who are listening to this who might be struggling with something can kind of have, you know, we talked about blind faith, maybe a little bit of that blind faith to know that it can completely turn around. And like, I never in a million years thought I'd be an author uh, or that I'd have like a, a, a beautiful new life with a new partner and um, making a new album, right? So um, yeah, I think it's all meant to be. And, it, and I think we let ourselves off the hook big time when we say that because then we don't beat ourselves up for all the stuff that we think we did wrong you know because there's a there's a lot that you could consider to be yeah terrible that you did but what's the point in thinking that really yeah and you've learned from every experience it's brought you to this point mm -hmm. where you are today yeah. it's really beautiful yeah i love that um what a pleasure so <laughs> nice to be with you today thank, thank you, you so much i'm so honored to be on your podcast it's so great to meet you Thank you. So nice to meet you too. I really appreciate the time. Hey friend, thanks for joining us today. To learn a bit more about M. Griner and to grab a copy of her new book, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 172. As I reflected on this conversation with M, I did a bit more research into the science behind visualization and why it works. And we're gonna be talking more about that in a coming episode. 
But for now, I am really grateful that you joined us today, and I hope that you found the investment of your time worthwhile. As always, I'd love to know what you thought about this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes and what's resonating with you. You can reach me via the contact link on the website or message me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Laura Cox Kaplan. Take care, have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.